pray. Father God, we are totally dependent on you. Regardless of whether we realize it or not, we need you. We're desperate for you. Trust your spirit to work this morning, to speak through me, to declare your word, to be our teacher. Your spirit is our helper and our guide to lead us into truth, help us to understand truth, to understand who you are and what you're like, to see your beauty and your magnificence and the splendor of your glory through your word and through your truth so that we can live in a way that brings you the most honor and glory that by living faithfully to you by your spirit, by Christ living through us, we would be satisfied in you. So we want to be satisfied, God, and we don't think that's selfish. We don't believe that's selfish. We believe that our satisfaction in you brings you glory. So do your work here this morning in ways that we couldn't even think of or ask or even imagine. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Last week, we addressed the importance of dealing with false teachers and the importance of having and protecting sound doctrine in the church so to preserve the purity of the gospel in the body of Christ. And today, Paul continues with this thought. Last week we did verse 3, today we're doing verses 4 through 7, and it's all together as one text with one idea. So we'll continue that idea and we'll discover today what kind of heresy of Judaism was being promoted by these false teachers in Ephesus and we'll see why, why these false teachers did it and what it produced. And the implication for the church today, well, the implication for the church in Ephesus and today is that sound doctrine is good for the body of Christ because, among many other reasons, it ensures that we are using our short time on earth wisely by spending our time genuinely getting to know who God is so that we can live in a way that honors him most. And that's going to be the take-home today. Like, ultimately, the purpose of you, your existence is God's glory, and so the question is, well, how do we glorify God? Well, there are an endless number of ways to answer that question. How do I glorify God? And one of the truths that we glean from this text today is one of the ways we glorify God is by stewarding the things that God gives us, by stewarding them in a way that honors him most. And one of the things in particular that we're going to see that need to be stewarded well in this text is our time. So we'll pick up in verse 4. However, I'm going to start reading verse 3 so we can get a, a sense of the entire text. So verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by Now, as we discovered recently, the, the false teaching in Ephesus was tied to Judaism. Paul commands Timothy to charge certain persons whom we now know were likely uh, church leaders, elders. And he charged, he used to, to charge these, these people to not teach any different doctrine. And Paul's list of what these false doctrines are continues in verse 4 which are myths and endless genealogies. In Titus 1.14, we find that the myths that he's referring to are Jewish myths. And we know from verse 7 that the false teaching is connected to the Old Testament because it says in verse 7, they're desired to be teachers of the law. And so they are teaching the law. And so the myths that they teach are Jewish myths about the law. And clearly the false teachers don't know the purpose of the law or the proper interpretations of the law or this wouldn't be a problem. So these Jewish false teachers were likely manufacturing fictional interpretations of the Old Testament. Meaning, they would teach the Old Testament 
as if it were allegory. Now, allegory is a story that has some sort of hidden meaning. But God's word, I need to be careful here because you could argue that God's word has allegory in the sense that sometimes God speaks to us figuratively in the sense that like say like a parable which is not a literal story but a story with a you know a meaning behind it and so there's in, in a sense you could argue that there's allegory but we still interpret a parable literally because there's a meaning behind the parable and we take the historical rendition of that parable literally Jesus literally told this parable at that time with these people literally there, listening to it at a literal time. So we interpret the Bible literally, not allegorically. God's word doesn't contain hidden meaning when he's recording history. It can contain meaning that is yet to be discovered or yet to be properly understood, but not hidden. And God doesn't communicate to us an allegory when he's sharing this historical information. Instead, he communicates to us Literally, we interpret the Bible literally. That's just a staple of, I could say, our church, but it's a staple of most churches and most Christians who have put any thought into what's the process of interpreting the Bible. Well, one of the first things you need to know is we take the Bible literally. Did Genesis 1 really happen? In a, you know, did, did God create in six literal days, or did God, you know, is, is a day a thousand years and that kind of stuff? No, nope, literally a day. And so we interpret the Bible literally. And the Old Testament is filled with stories, and these stories are not made up. They're not intended to mean something different or completely different than what we read. And though they are stories, and we use the word story, because when you use the word story, you tend to think of it's something that's made up, right? Let me tell you a story. But stories are historical too. You ever tell your kids, let me tell you a story when I was younger. That's historically true. So a story can be fiction or nonfiction. And the biblical stories are nonfiction. They're fact. They happened. They're literal. Things that happened in the Old Testament literally happened to literal people in the time that the Bible literally describes. And the authors intended them to be literal, and the recipients or the hearers of the Old Testament understood and interpreted them as literal and therefore, we, we must interpret them as literal. If you think about it like this, Jesus references the Old Testament over 140 times. If the Old Testament is allegorical and not literal, and then why does Jesus interpret the Old Testament literally? So he considers the Old Testament to be literal, and he'll take... In, he'll mention individuals and reference them as real people. And Jesus isn't the only person in the New Testament who does that. There, there, there are many authors of Scripture in the New Testament that reference Old Testament people as literal people. And the stories as literally having hap, hap, uh, hap, mm, that happened. So, <laughs> I'm like halfway to vacation already. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Once you creep into allegory, you can make any text in Scripture mean whatever you want it to mean. I mean, that's, that's what's at stake here. So that's really a big deal. If, by chance, you're thinking, does it really matter? I mean, it isn't just the point to get, like, the general principle or moral thing out of it. No, that's not the point. The point isn't just to get the moral truth out of it and then live that moral truth because that moral truth has no basis if God's word is not consistent. Because if God's word's not consistent, then God's not consistent and we can't trust his word. So we have to believe that scripture is literal so that we can believe what God tells us. And if, in order to live faithfully and righteously, we have to know what God means. And in order to understand the meaning of scripture, we have to, un we have to interpret it and the interpretation needs to be literal. So, what's at stake in how we interpret Scripture is truth. And so in Ephesus, these false teachers were taking Old Testament stories and, and the law and teaching them allegorically, saying, well, God doesn't care about this or that. He, just, he says that to teach you a, a bigger principle. It doesn't matter, you know, in the law, what you eat. It doesn't matter how you enact or live out this particular law. That's not what God was after. He was just after your heart. I mean, you hear that today. It's no different today. We have the same problem in, 
in the church to some extent, in some churches today, where people are like, well, God knows my heart, right? Like, it doesn't matter if I do this command exactly this way or exactly that way. It's just, God knows my heart. I'm trying to do the right thing. I mean, if that's, if that's all that matters, that you're trying to do the right thing, then there's no basis for truth. In fact, then there's no basis for what is the right thing. Hitler thought he was doing the right thing. I mean, Hitler could easily say, well, God knows my heart. I'm trying to do the right thing because he has, his truth is not this truth. And so you can't just do what you want and say it's the right thing. I think I've shared this recently, but the uh, Israelites, when they were in the desert and they were at the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses was up on the mountain getting God's commandments and law and the people gathered up all their gold and made a golden calf. Why did they make a golden calf? Because they wanted to worship. Who did they want to worship? God. They wanted to worship God. That was their agenda. Was God pleased with that worship? Mm -mm. Because they made an idol. Their hearts were in the right place in the sense that their desire was to worship God. They just didn't have an object to look at like the rest of the world had objects to look at that were their gods. And they wanted something to see, something tangible, something to look at, something to bow down to. And so they made a golden calf and they worshiped God through this golden calf. And God said, that's not okay. That's sin. And the Israelites could have easily been like, well, our hearts were in the right place. We're trying to worship you. And God's like, I don't... Your heart being in the quote-unquote right place can't be true if you don't do it right. God gives us direction. He gives us clarity. He gives us instruction. He gives us commands. And those commands and that clarity and those instructions and that guidance exists on purpose to satisfy your soul, which will bring him more glory. That's the whole point. So if we do it wrong, it doesn't satisfy And if it doesn't satisfy, God doesn't get glory through it. So we have to do the things that Scripture says. We have to obey the commands. Whether it's the Old Testament law and you're an Old Testament Jew living in Old Testament times and you've got to follow the law exactly to the word of the law, that's what God expects. That's why he has the law. The point isn't to pull some allegorical hidden meaning from that law and then say, oh, the point is to live in the principle of the law. That's not allowable. And you can't, in the same thing in the New Testament, in the church today, for us, for you, sitting here reading the Bible and, and bypassing some respectable sins that we can kind of just ignore because, ah, God knows my heart. That's not acceptable. It's not biblical, and it's not based on truth. And it's certainly, what we don't realize we're doing is we're not basing our truth on a little, literal understanding of God's word. If Jesus says, prove to be my disciples, then what should we do? Prove to be his disciples. If we're commanded not to get drunk, what should we do? Not get drunk. If we're commanded to be sexually pure and abstain from sexual morality, as he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, then we should abstain. Like, there's no... We try to like bend commands around grace, which is super problematic. And the reason I, I, I fear saying these kinds of things sometimes is because it's, it might come off as like I'm against grace, which is insane because without grace, I go to hell. And without grace, I can't obey the word. But God's grace, and I've said this before, God's grace not only covers our sin, but God's grace is the means by which we can follow the commands according to the letter of the law, according to the letter of his word, according to the clear instructions of his commands in the New Testament for us to live. So, I say all that because we need to take God's word seriously. And it's very easy for Christians today to look at God's word and not take it seriously. And the reason they don't take it seriously is because of grace. Which is... A, an absolute putrid rendition of grace. That is such an abuse of grace. That makes grace ugly. 
when we use it to not take God's word seriously. Grace is the means by which you can know God's word. And grace is, the grace of God is the means by which we can live God's word and know exactly what the commands say and then live those commands according to the way they're written. Then we can honor God. That's what grace does. When we look at the Bible and say, well, I'm covered by grace, so if I sin, I don't go to hell. So I've got this grace that keeps me from hell, and it allows me to kind of live how I want. Now, in my mind, I know, and, I, and I, when I say out loud, you know, I won't say out loud, it's okay to sin. I know it's not okay to sin. And in my heart, I know it's not okay to sin. And, and in my mind, I know that, like, I shouldn't abuse grace. But the reality is, I kind of do. <laughs> and we all, I think we all do, really, to some extent, in certain ways. All of us really do this. Maybe we don't realize it, and maybe not all of us. Maybe just a lot of us. But... That's because we've got this sinful nature and we abuse God's gifts sometimes and that's not okay, but it happens. And when it does, thank God for his grace, right? Because we do fail at doing these things well and God's grace covers us. And with that grace, he lifts us up so we can walk according to his word. And so, this, so what grace does is it kind of loosens up the Christian. To kind of live how they want. And then you find chapters in the Bible, that, you know, like 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, where you've got... Now, Paul talking about Christian liberty, right? Christian freedom. To, when the Bible doesn't have clear, uh, explicit commands on how to live your life, what do we do? And the Bible addresses that. And so there are these moments in life where there's not clarity exactly on what to do in certain situations or what decisions to make. And we just kind of like make a decision that we think is most wise and maybe it's right and God is honored or maybe it's wrong and we sin. And when that happens, we go, well, thank God for his grace. And all that is true and awesome. But that doesn't allow us to just kind of flippantly and loosely just do what we want with God's word. Interpret it however we feel like interpreting it. Or ignore an interpretation so I can get away with certain sins. Or create a specific interpretation that allows me to sin. And I can justify my sin. Like, none of that's okay, and that's why interpreting the Bible literally matters. And this allegorical style of interpretation is, it happens today too. Um, it's a tactic used by heretics. Now, there's a guy named Rob Bell, who I would call a false teacher. Um, if, you're just, if you're the kind of person who's like, ooh, I don't think pastors should call out other preachers from the pulpit, um, I agree with you, unless they're a false teacher, then I think it's somewhat, depending on the circumstance, my responsibility to name a false teacher um, who teaches a false gospel, someone like Joel Osteen who teaches a false gospel, and, 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 and also, like I just said, Rob Bell. Now, Rob Bell was a, a, past, or a, a pastor who planted a church called Mars Hill in Michigan. It was one of the fastest growing churches in America. And no wonder why he excused the literal interpretation of Scripture, among many other things. He wrote a book called Love Wins. Man, this is about mm, 15 years ago or so he wrote this book. Back then, and still today would be valid, that was a perfect title to capture the eyes and the hearts and the minds of Christians. Love wins. Because love is like that thing that Christians just, that's what matters most, love. And so he writes this book, Love Wins. I read it. And after going through chapter after chapter, I started to realize something. He doesn't make any statements. He doesn't make any statements. There's no periods at the end of sentences. You notice at the end of every sentence? A question mark. So he just asks questions. The questions are rhetorical, so there's this like, you know, I'm not accountable to what you believe kind of disposition in the book. So it's just filled with questions and questions like, is God's word really true? Like, that's a 
Well, that's a question that anyone can ask. Yeah, that's a great question, but there's no way, knowing everything I do know about Rob Bell and other things he's said and done, there's no way that that question doesn't mean anything other than to put God's word into question. And so the point he ends up making as he asks all these rhetorical questions that imply a false belief, the question he ends up asking is, can we, does Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, 13 letters in the New Testament, does Paul, who's 2,000 years in our past, can he really know more than us 2,000 years later? Think about all we've learned, all the knowledge we've gained, all the information we've processed and all the truth that we've ascertained after all these years of studying the Bible and interpreting scripture and knowing the world and the world's not what it was 2,000 years ago and the point that Rob Bell makes is really how can we believe that Paul knows more than us? Can't we know more than Paul? Well, once you start asking that question, what do you start doing? You start chopping out the legs of Scripture. You start questioning the authority of God's Word. Now, all of a sudden, a guy named Paul doesn't have the authority that Scripture carries with it. And the problem with that kind of thinking is that this Bible has nothing to do with Paul. Paul didn't write this. The Holy Spirit wrote this. Through 40-plus different authors over a span of 3,000 years, and he, uh, the entire word of God perfectly correlates with every other verse. And no way that that is humanly possible at all. By the smartest, you could put a hundred of the smartest men who've ever lived or smartest people who've ever lived in one room and say, write a book that spans over this long period of time by this many different people and try to make it connect with, it, with it itself in ways that are unexplainable and then put prophecies in it that get fulfilled. At least 300 of them get fulfilled by one particular person and that would be an astronomically impossible to happen. Can you do that for us? There's no way they could do that. So people like Rob Bell who teach this kind of like, let's question scripture. What they do is they put the authority of God's word on the chopping block. And people start to speculate, which is interesting because it's a word that he just used in verse 4. These myths and endless genealogies promote speculation. And so we need to be careful because all that that is going to do is open you up to interpret scripture however you want. If Paul isn't authoritative anymore, and I'm smarter than Paul, or maybe your local pastor or some theologian is now smarter than Paul, and he wants to say that this is what this verse means, then they can make up whatever they want. And now the Bible doesn't mean anything. It could just mean whatever you want it to mean, which is exactly what Rob Bell has done with the Bible. And it leads to a plethora of false doctrines in the church. And this is why it's mandatory that we preserve the purity of the gospel and the purity of sound doctrine in the church through literal interpretation. Now, the myths that were preached in Ephesus were not only allegorical interpretations of Old Testament stories, but also they were allegorical interpretations of the many Old Testament genealogies. So look at verse 4, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. An allegorical interpretation of Old Testament sto stories certainly does damage to the gospel. But to add to that, an allegorical interpretation of genealogies makes it even worse because genealogies, just hold on, I, when you think of a genealogy, do you get excited to read it? Do you love reading genealogies? Most people read genealogies in the Bible and they just kind of like whiz through them really fast. Kind of just, you know, you don't know, most of the names you don't know, so you're like, you just kind of like <laughs> murmur their names as you read it, right? And, and so, and they're kind of boring because it's like, this guy lived this many years and he had a son and he had this son and that guy had a son and this guy's father was, you know, it's just, it's just information. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to have like this spiritual encouragement in it, you know? So it's just information that we kind of just pass by. But here's the thing, those genealogies are absolutely vital to the gospel. Absolutely vital to the gospel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, says, these are the genealogies of Jesus Christ. The beginning of the New Testament starts with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1 is completely dependent on a literal interpretation of the Old Testament genealogies. 
So if Old Testament genealogies are allegorical, then the New Testament genealogies of Christ is also allegorical. And that would automatically put either the reality of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, or the humanity of Jesus into question. And when you put the truth into question, it does not promote faith, but rather promotes speculation about the faith. And that is why Paul continues in verse 4 and says, which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. So the allegorical interpretations of the Old Testament that were being pushed by the Jewish heretics in the church were causing speculations and questions about the validity of the gospel and the personhood of Christ rather than doing what the word of God is intended to do, to encourage your faith as we steward the word of God in faithfulness. So the Old Testament and its proper interpretation is significantly important to our understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, who we are, and what the gospel is. And therefore, making these allegorical false teachings a significant problem in the church. Now, at this point, based on what I've said over the last few weeks, really since we started 1 Timothy, because there's been a lot of talk kind of about the way in which these false teachers are supposed to be dealt with. And then also, you know, I stand here and I rag on Joel Osteen or Rob Bell, and it, it just, it's, it can sound very negative. It can sound kind of like, you know, let's bad, let's, let's talk about the things we're against, right? And we don't want to be known as being against things, but there are things we are commanded to be against. We are commanded to be against false teaching. And we are commanded to be for truth. And so there are times that we have to be kind of what would appear as negative, or anti, like we're anti-false teaching. We're anti-false teachers. So that can kind of come off or be seen by the world or seen by many Christians as mean or ungracious, kind of contrarian, complaining. There's a very fine line between teaching truth and complaining and I've seen many examples of preachers walk that fine line and veer from explaining to complaining. And they're just at the pulpit ranting about the things they're against and things that they hate. And I'm sure I've done it too. But, like, that isn't helpful. What we want to do is if we're going to be anti-something, against something, it needs to be something that opposes the gospel or the truth. So we can stand firm on truth. So that instead of being against something, we're for the truth. And though being against certain things, like being against false teaching and being against false teachers, seems mean and ungracious and unloving. Paul fixes that in verse 5. He says, the aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, you know what that creates? Conviction. Paul says here that it creates love. And love, well, God is love. And God is also truth. So truth, to speak truth, to declare truth, to have a conviction about truth is love. Love is the aim, and to allow false teaching, that's not love. To treat false teachers without concern for their heresy or to be aloof to their heresy or to be like disinterested or detached, like it's not a big deal, of no concern for their heresy, uh, you know, just for the, at the sake of not offending the heretic or, or not offending the people who will see me defy the heretic. I don't want to offend people and, and, and to, to give up Being against heresy for the sake of not offending somebody, that's not love. To dismiss or avoid such heresies for the sake of those who promote them is to hate that false teacher. The way Paul deals with Hymenaeus and Alexander in verse 20 is that he wants to teach them. He wants them to learn something. Okay, so he's giving them the benefit of the doubt that they're believers and that they can learn from this although it will be painful for them. So 
Paul loves Hymenaeus and Alexander in the way that he deals with them because he's giving them an opportunity to fix their problem, which is their false teaching. So it is to love someone to correct their teaching. To dismiss or avoid heresies. It's not only to hate the false teacher, but it's to hate the church. And more importantly, it's to hate God. God is truth, so loving truth is a way in which we love God. To treat truth as like flexible and pliable is offensive to God because God's word is clear about truth. Therefore, to love the sinner and to love the church and to love God, believers must hate the lies, which comes from a love for the truth. And we must hate the false teaching, which comes, for a love, comes from a love for the true teaching. And we must address it directly because the truth is on the line. And if the truth is on the line, then the nature of God is on the line. And if we don't know who God is, then we can't know who we are. And we certainly can't be satisfied, happy, joyful. And if we can't be those things, we can't honor God. So love is expressed in defying, defying false teaching and dealing with it or removing false teachers. And as I said before, now a little leaven leavens a whole lump, right? That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. A little bit of yeast makes all the dough rise. One bad apple spoils the whole bunch. That one false teacher, that one heretic, their feelings are not worth the life of the church. So we sacrifice them and their false teaching and their wickedness to preserve the purity of God's people so we could be holy and blameless before him. And that is love. And the key to doing this faithfully is, as Paul says, we must have a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. Those three things, Paul says, they issue love. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith will produce love. And not only must we have those characteristics as we deal with false teachers, but they are also the basis by which we want to deal with false teachers. It produces a desire to deal with heresy because we begin to love the truth so much when we have a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith which creates a strong conviction about the truth of God's word and we begin to love God's word more and in that conviction we stand and we take hard stances and we stand against un, uh, unbel- uh, not unbel- we stand against false teachers and their heresies since purity and a good conscience and faith produce conviction, and that conviction is alive in us. We know the truth, and in knowing the truth, we hate the lie, and we care about how God is portrayed in the church, and we care about how God is portrayed to the world. Right? Moses cared about how God was portrayed to the world when they left Egypt, and the, be- <clears throat> the people were like defying God, and God's like, well, I'm just going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And Moses is like, God, if you do that, what are the Egyptians going to say? They're going to be like, some God he is just brought his people out to the desert to die. Did God need Moses' wisdom? No. Where did Moses get his wisdom? God. Okay. So God shows Moses that he loves Moses and loves his people, Israel, by listening to Moses and giving Moses a role of mediator between God's people and himself. Why? Because Moses is a type of Christ. Moses didn't change God's mind. God gave Moses a thought so Moses could be portrayed in the Old Testament as an image or picture of what Christ will do for us, which is, we'll see in chapter 2, verse 5, become the mediator between God and man. And what does God do? Changes his mind. Or seemingly changes his mind. And listens to his his people because he loves his people. How God is portrayed to the world matters. How Egypt viewed God mattered. 
Because God knows what he's doing. God knows the impact that Egypt will have in the life of Israel down the line. And so it is vital that we convey God properly to a lost world. Now you could argue, what's the point in, who cares what the world thinks about God? They're, they're unbelievers. But like I said in my prayer, and we learned in family discipleship, family discipleship this last Wednesday, is that, uh, and we see this in Ephesians chapter 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of darkness. It is Satan who we are at war with, not people. People are not our problem. This is one of the first sermons I ever preached. In fact, just dawned on me. 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7 is the first sermon I ever preached in this church as the pastor here. October 4th, 2015. Second sermon I ever preached here. First sermon I ever preached here was uh, my candidating sermon, like back in August 2nd, <laughs> I think. And the first sermon I ever preached was this one, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. It was titled preserving the purity of the gospel, which is almost identical to last week's title. And I didn't do that on purpose, although I'm sure it was in my mind somewhere. And um, why did I say that? I don't know. Um, yeah. Uh, either way, um, I, I forgot where I was going with that. So let's just go to verse 6. All right. <laughs> verse 6. Verses 6 and 7. Paul says, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident, confident assertions. So the certain persons are those who Paul mentioned earlier, the false teachers, right? And they desire to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand the law, which is obvious because they give inter uh, allegorical interpretations of the law. And what Paul's saying is, an allegorical, so the we have the Bible itself telling us that allegorically interpreting the Bible is not faithful interpretation of the Bible. And they do this because they have swerved from these. Look at that, verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, well, what are these? These are the pure heart, the good conscience, and a sincere faith. And the result of not having a good conscience, a pure, a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith, is that without them... Love is not issued. You need those things for love to be issued. That's what we learned back in verse 5. So without pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, love's not issued. And without love, according to 1 Corinthians 13, you are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You are worthless. The things you say are meaningless. They are noise. Noise pollution. And they're not good. So without love, everything's meaningless. And without a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith, there is no love. And without truth, there's no conviction. So we need these things to have love. And if we don't, the result is what happened in Ephesus. They wander, as Paul says, off into vain discussions. They, they speak authoritatively, though, as if what they have to say is truth, and they therefore make what Paul says at the end of verse 7, confident assertions in an authoritative way. And I'm sure you've all heard, you know, if you speak with authority, people will believe what you say. I mean, I'm sure that's like, you know, something really important that salesmen have to keep in mind. If you go into a sales call to pitch selling your company's product to a possible client, and you're like, um, I, I just, I don't, I think it works. I don't, oh, they're going to be like, this guy doesn't know anything. No one wants to buy from that person. But if you walk in, they're like, boy, do I have something to give you. You can't live without this. Have you ever wondered? And then you go into this pitch, and you've got this great story, and you're really captivating, and you've got this authority that comes. You need this product. People are willing to buy a lot easier. Forbes released an article about speaking authoritatively. And they gave a list of 10 ways to do this. 10 ways to speak authoritatively. Number one, take ownership of the room. Number two, stand like a champion. <laughs> Number three, sit with your elbows on the table. Number four, tailor, tailor your message to the audience. 
Number five, get to the point. Number six, slow down and breathe. Number seven, utilize your vocal tools. Number eight, cut out the fill-in words like um. Number nine, inject humor and warmth. Number ten, let go of self-doubt. That's a, I mean, that's a, that's a decent list for how to communicate in a way that will garner some, you know, attention. That's, I'm not, I don't think this list is a bad list. But you know what's not on the list? Truth. Truth isn't on the list. Paul said when he went to, Paul says in a number of times in the New Testament, that when he came to these towns to preach the gospel, he said, I didn't come with eloquent language like the orators of your day who walk around speaking eloquently and having all kinds of great speaking and oracle, uh, oral gifts. And, and Paul says, I don't have any of those things. I came not knowing how to preach, not knowing how to talk, being unsure of myself, timid and shy and no eloquence in my speech at all. Why? So that when I preach the truth, you would see it has nothing to do with the way that I say it and it has everything to do with the Holy Spirit. And he says it is so that you would see the power of God and not the power of my speech or the power of man. That is because when Paul spoke, what did he speak? Truth. You don't have to carry yourself in an authoritative way if you're speaking the truth. I went to a conference once. This preacher got up. I knew, who this, I knew what his personality was like. I was not looking forward to his sermon. <laughs> I'm like, this guy's boring. He's just like, a, he talks like this the whole time. And he's just, I'm like, I'm not going to enjoy this at all. But I know he's solid theologically. I'm like, you know, I'm here, whatever. I'll just sit through it. One of my favorite sermons ever. I just, it was like God, like, like God gave me an awareness right before he started that, like, ugh. This guy's boring. And then he spoke truth and the boring nature in his delivery, which all of a sudden became not boring because the things he was saying were interesting because the truth is interesting. Have you ever heard anyone ever say that the Bible's boring? Are you kidding me? Have you read this book? This is every movie ever made wrapped up into one story. It has murder. It has affairs. It has, if you're into those things, if, uh, it has... <laughs> I don't know if that's the kind of movies you watch. It has drama. It has, um, it has, has love stories. It has uh, struggles and competitions. And every genre of storytelling is in the Bible. It's got wisdom. It's got parables. It's got all kinds of interesting things. And, and, and here's the coolest part. Every single word is 100% true. That's incredible. Have you ever watched a movie that's totally true? No, you have not. Because if you ever watch a movie that says based on tr true events, it's just based on it, like Cocaine Bear, right? Yes, <laughs> see that <laughs> new movie, Cocaine Bear? It's, a it's based on truth, but they've got in the movie this bear running around destroying it. That doesn't, that never happened in reality, but you know. A bear who finds a block of cocaine and eats it and then just dies in the woods isn't a great movie. So they got to embellish it and make this bear crazy. I'm sorry, did I cross the line? <laughs> if I did, I apologize. I'm sorry. Anyways, the point is that all the things that we have that are even close to truth as far as storytelling and great entertainment, it's not true. It's got to be made up. It's got to be made up. And so... We've got in our hands not made up truth that is the most incredible and greatest story ever told. So, you don't have to speak with this authority like, if I say it like this, they'll listen to me and they'll believe what I say. Like, and I, I, I do believe that is super effective and helpful and good that when preaching truth, that there is a cadence that we call homiletics. It's the way in which the truth is delivered. Hermeneutics is the interpretation and understanding of the truth itself. So the truth that is teached is garnered or gained by a process we call hermeneutics. It's the art and science of biblical interpretation. How that truth is then delivered to an audience or to the church is what we call the homiletic. I have a particular homiletic. I would imagine you're here because you somewhat like it. Otherwise, you'd be like, I don't like the way that guy preaches. I'm going to go somewhere else, right? 
And that's just a matter of preference, really. As long as the hermeneutics are right and the interpretation and the truth is right, that's all that matters. The rest, it's helpful, it matters, but it's not, it's not the most important thing. And so speaking authoritatively isn't as important as speaking truth. And this authoritative tone is the tactic that the false teachers used to command adherence from their listeners. And if spoken with authority, you can convince many people to believe whatever you want them to believe. And according to Paul, this leads only to vain discussions, which are, vain discussions are a waste of time. Because when you have a vain discussion, you're wasting your time. Why is it a waste of time? Because it's vain. It's, it's meaningless. It's pointless. It's vanity. It has no purpose. So it's just, it's a waste. Your words that you're pouring out of your mouth in this vain discussion are, are nothing. They have no eternal value. And, and Paul tells us that we, all of us will be held accountable for every careless word we speak. Keep that in mind this week. We'll be held accountable for every careless word we speak. How do you talk to your wife? How do you talk to your children? How do you talk to your employees, your boss? How do you talk to your friends? How do you talk to yourself? So we don't want to waste our time in these vain discussions and because wasting time, that's a sin. Ephesians 5, 15 through 16 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So what is wise then? Making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Wisdom is holy. And that which is not wise is foolish, and foolishness is sin. So to foolishly waste your time in vain discussions is sin because you're using up time that could be spent doing what is wise, like teaching the truth or serving the body or discussing doctrine or learning or growing or evangelizing or whatever, etc., 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 all the things that we could be doing useful with our, uh, useful using our time according to the word. Instead... To wander into vain discussions, which come from not having a pure heart and a good conscience and sound faith and not having strong conviction and not knowing the truth. We wander into these vain discussions and it, what it does is it wastes one of the church's most valuable, valuable resources, time. And Paul identifies these vain discussions as a waste of time because he calls the discussions about genealogy endless Meaning, if we go down that road, you could get lost forever in foolish theology and meaningless discussion about untrue things or get wrapped up, really, really wrapped up in some things that, that you don't know or some things that aren't true. And this happens to Christians a lot. I'm just, I've seen it. I'm sure you've seen it too, where there's a Christian who gets really hung up on like maybe one big idea in the Bible and they take it and they run with it. And all of a sudden, they're just way off base biblically because they can only see that one thing. I see people do that with end times. All the time. That eschatology, which is the study of end times, that people have such an eschatological bent that that's all they see. And every single thing that happens in the news, they take it and they insert it in their end times thought process and that's all that matters to them. And it just... I'm not saying that you shouldn't think about eschatology or the end times or no, of course we should. We're commanded to watch Watch, it's a diligent attentiveness to the return of Christ. Of course we should be thinking about those things. But that's not the only thing we should be thinking about. So this happens to Christians a lot. We get stuck in one avenue. We end up in these vain discussions that, that lead down these roads that just become problematic. And it doesn't promote faith. And it's a waste of time. And since James 4.14 says that life is but a vapor, here today, gone tomorrow. And if life is but a vapor, then time is not a luxury, but a tool we are to steward and to wield wisely for the glory of God. So you can imagine how the continuation of unchecked teaching in the church can be dangerous and this is why church leadership, like Timothy, for example, is responsible for what is taught in the church because God holds his called leaders 
accountable to sound doctrine in the church. And that is why we're careful who we let preach at this pulpit. And careful, we're careful about who, who is teaching and what is taught in Bible studies and life groups and youth groups and children's ministries or whatever. Unchecked teaching can lead to false teaching even, even if the teacher's intention is not sinful or heretical. So I take this calling serious because what we teach, there's just there's so much on the line. We have to take this seriously. What we teach determines what we believe about God. And what you believe about God directly determines how you live your life. John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John's doctrine was sound, and the purpose of his doctrine was to ensure that through sound doctrine, believers would know the truth. And only in knowing the truth can one live faithfully to God and do what John says, not sin. So John gives us a doctrine, a theological exercise, and then says, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. So he gets the gospel right in chapter 1 of 1 John, and then he starts chapter 2 and says, there's a reason I'm telling you this. I don't want you to sin. That's the purpose. He doesn't want us to sin. You, you're going to sin if you have bad doctrine. You're going to. You have to have sound doctrine. I think that a lot of people will look at like church leaders or pastors or preachers and think, oh, they really care about the theology and doctrine and they really try to be very maybe intellectual on that level. That's their job, not mine. First of all, it's not just our job, it's also yours. Everyone's a theologian. How good of a theologian you are is determined by how much time you spend in the Word, probably. But we're all theologians. And the reason that pastors or preachers can be viewed as just like, you know, very doctrinally kind of mind is because we recognize the massive importance that the, that the Bible states for us to preserve the purity of sound doctrine for the sake of you. So one of the best ways that I can love you is to know the truth, protect the truth, defend the truth, and ward off anything that isn't the truth, even if that means running people out of town. I have no desire to do that. I don't want to do that. I wish everyone would just believe and we'd all be happy together. That would be wonderful, but that doesn't happen. So, be careful who you read. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful what you believe because what you know will determine how you live. And how you live matters because God is clear in Scripture about how to live. And like I was saying earlier, just like the example with the golden calf, you can say, well, I didn't live it exactly how God told me to do it, but my heart was in the right place. Well, that just doesn't cut it. It's still sin then. I mean, it doesn't mean you're going to hell, but it's still sin. And so, in order to not sin, we need to know what the Word says about how we should worship. What we should do, what we should say, what we shouldn't say. So, faithfulness to God's word requires knowledge of God's word. And knowledge of God's word requires time in God's word. And this is why we offer opportunities to be in God's word, uh, for you to be in God's word, at least not more, four times a week, right? We've got Sunday morning service. Um, we've got men's Bible study, women's Bible study, family discipleship, and life groups. That's a, those are a lot of opportunities within one week for you to be in the Word with God's people. We do that intentionally. Because as much as, and you know me, I'm, I'll preach all day long about how you should be at home in the Word by yourself all the time. Like, that's, I'm all for that. But if you're only doing that, then we could start to have a problem because if you're just secluded in your own thoughts and you're not being influenced by the very people you live your life with, then, then your interpretation could be wildly out of bounds. 
You could sit at home and just be like, uh, I don't know what this verse means. I'm going to just, I think it means this. And then you just start believing that it means that. And now you've got this false interpretation in your, in your like pocket. And the next time you come across another truth that's related to that, you're going to take that out of your pocket and go, well, if this is true, then that must mean this. And all of a sudden you've got a whole string of doctrine that just starts becoming off base. And there's nobody around you listening to you, talking with you, teaching you, hearing you, discussing things with you to say, whoa, 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 that's not quite true. That's why we need each other. That's why we need the church. That's why we need Bible studies. One sermon per week, this is not enough. This just isn't enough. This doesn't cut it. If this is all the feeding you're getting, not enough. So that's why we offer more, right? And because I want you to be, I know you want to be in the word. And if you're not in the word, and it makes you feel a little guilty, you're like, I know I should be in the word more. Don't feel guilty. Stop feeling guilty. That guilt is not going to produce faithfulness to be in the word. What it's going to do is every time you're not, you're going to beat yourself up. And you're going to start creating a language in your mind that I'm a piece of garbage and I never do what's right. Which is the opposite of what the Bible says because the Bible says that you are a new creation in Christ and in that new creation and by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ who now lives in me is no longer, Galatians 2.20, is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me, loved me and gave himself for me. So now because Christ lives in me, I didn't read my Bible today, but I can tomorrow or I can right now. So change the way you talk to yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Guilt, that's from Satan. Conviction, to do the right thing, to make a change, that comes from the Holy Spirit. I want to give you as many opportunities as possible to glean from God's word and to grow doctrinally and theologically. I I want you to be theologians. All of you. Okay? How many of you in here are under the age of 12? That's a lot of little hands. <laughs> I didn't, that's funny, Luke. Uh, for you little kids, under the age of 12, and, and over the age of 12, but we think of little kids like, oh, they're just little kids, they just need to learn little stories. Man, the stories we teach you kiddos, those are, those are really important. They create a foundation upon which you will build a theology one day, kids, and then you're going to grow in that theology and learn who God is and the way you live your life and the decisions you make, who you choose to marry and who you choose not to marry and where you decide to live and what your job's going to be and what kind of career you want to enter or what kind of, you know, all kinds of decisions you make, how you spend your money. Those are the kind of things that are going to be determined by the things that we teach you. So, so everyone in this room is a theologian. Six-year-olds in this room are theologians. Ten-year-olds are theologians. My youngest son is ten. He's a theologian. He's got a long way to go, but he's a theologian. (laughs) And the things he knows, well, I taught him to him. Like, he hasn't figured a whole lot out on his own because he's a kid. So he needs parents to teach him. This is why parents, it's your responsibility to teach your kids the word. And if you're waiting on the church to do the job, that ain't going to cut it either. That's like you come to church once a week and saying, that's all I need. So, it is our responsibility to grow and become theologians. Not for the sake of theology, but for the sake of righteous living that honors God and satisfies you. We need to know the word and we need to protect the word as truth. And the reason is because time is short. And time is short because life is short. So do not waste it on temporal things when you have so many opportunities to know God by being in his word together with his people. And I'll give you, I'll end with this, a quote from John Piper. Don't waste your life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We love you. Don't let us waste our life on things that aren't important. We have your word. We have truth. And if we know it and study it and we grow doctrinally and theologically so that our lives would look like holiness to you, then we will be satisfied and you will be glorified. We want that. So help us make good use of our time. Not to get lost in vain discussions and meaningless chatter about myths and allegories and untrue things and let us know your word, interpret your word, understand your word 
believe your word so we can live your word faithfully. We love you. Pray you would bless this body. And Lord, I just want to pray. Just, Father, you know I'm going away for 10 days. And uh, you've called me to shepherd your people. Um, don't always feel, Father, like like I am a good shepherd to your people, but you're gracious. Thank you. While I'm gone, would you protect your church? Would you look after your sheep? Would you guard their hearts from heresy? Guard their minds from sin? Bind them to each other? Cling, have them cling to one another? Father, I have witnessed three and a half years ago when I was gone for a while, I witnessed you bring this church together in unity in a way that wouldn't have happened if I were here. So I know I'm only going away 10 days, but Lord, I just ask that you would show this church that though you have given them a human shepherd that they call their pastor to love them and guide them and teach them and, and, and counsel them and prepare them for life, though you've given them that, while I'm gone, remind them that they don't need me. That you are all that matters. You are who we need. And build a unity in this body in the next 10 to 11 days that is so profoundly real and significant that this church looks at their pastor and goes, he's just another instrument. We love him, but he's just another instrument. So, Lord, do a, a mighty work as, a, as the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ, you are the senior pastor here. You're the great shepherd. Guard the pen from wolves and love on your people. Draw them together. Build unity. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.